0: And thank you.
1: Yeah. Hey. Thank you so much for the introduction, Katie. I would normally give a territorial acknowledgement, but you're all in various territories around places. I'm not sure where you all are, so I'll just acknowledge that we are very likely all on unceded First Nations territory. Various First Nations people, and we're grateful for letting them um, sit in our houses and uh, stay safe during the COVID crisis, and uh, and talk about the ongoing research of the BC Humanists. So yeah, as as Katie mentioned, I'm the research coordinator for the BC Humanists. And we are currently working on a raft of different research projects, and there's no possible way we can talk about all of them today. But my plan was to give you an overview of, generally speaking, the current research we're doing around prayer, and specifically legislative prayer. And then we can take sort of deeper dives if anyone's interested in some of the various topics, but we'll look at that. But a couple of the other things we are doing that we won't have time to talk about today are some ongoing research into um, various tax exemptions given to different religious organizations and places of worship. So one of our next reports that's going to come out looks at permissive tax exemptions for municipalities. And then we've also looked at tax exemptions at the federal level through the CRA and also other legal exemptions that might be granted for various religious and um, religious reasons those are ongoing but we don't have time to talk about all of them today so the plan was generally to talk about our research looking at prayer and like I mentioned please ask questions during it helps me like talk about what you guys are interested in and also um, we can take questions between sort of the various segments and I'm going to try and talk about it project by project and uh, yeah with that in mind. The general basis for a lot of the conversation around legislative prayer, and that's a prayer that takes place in a legislative body, whether that's a municipal council or parliament or a provincial legislature, a lot of that work and a lot of the um, the strength of a lot of the case that we're presenting comes from a 2015 court case from the Supreme Court of Canada. And this is the Saguenay decision. And basically the Saguenay decision... The, the summary of it, the, the basic rundown of Saguenay was that um, you have a gentleman from Saguenay, Quebec, who um, was attending regular sessions of the Municipal Council, and they were starting each session of the Municipal Council with a prayer, an overtly Christian prayer that people were crossing themselves. There was a large cross on the wall, and Alain Simonot um, objected to this as being um, exclusionary, and this went to the Supreme Court, and in 2015 he won this case. And this was really an important legal case because it establishes the constitutional basis for saying that legislative prayer is not okay. And we've done a lot of work building on this in BC, looking at lots of different levels because it is such an important document, uh, such an important um, agreement, decision rather, sorry. <laughs> and the decision basically states that the state has a duty of religious neutrality, which means that the state of the Canadian government cannot pick sides in religious disputes, it cannot favor one religion over others or no religion. And not only is this, and it described this as being incredibly important, in fact, it was described as a democratic imperative, that a democratic state must have a government that is neutral with respect to religion. And so, with this in mind, we have launched a number of research projects looking into legislative prayer, building on the 2015 decision. So the next report that you're likely to see, although <laughs> temporarily speaking, this might vary because we have lots of different reports coming out, but one of our future reports looks at prayer at municipal councils. Um, so we actually have Renil present, which is great, because Renil is one of our, our summer research researchers working on this project. Basically, after 2015, no municipal council in Canada can start a meeting, whether it's an inaugural meeting or a random committee session with a prayer. And we wanted to look in to see whether this was the case. And we knew that we had a few complaints from across the province that indicated that not all municipalities were following this after 2015. I noticed my municipality, for example, here in Saanich, started its inaugural session in 2018 with two prayers. So we launched this project where we were able to look and to verify which municipalities in BC were following the law that says you cannot start a municipal council meeting with a prayer and you know which ones were were not. We kind of broke into two different categories. We recognize that inaugural meetings, so that's the first meeting that takes place right after new people are elected, right after an election, were treated often slightly differently than regular sessions. And we first started by emailing all the municipal councils and municipalities and asked them if they followed this practice. And we only got responses back from a very small number. And they tended to be the ones that were following the law because no one's going to rat themselves out. Let's go figure. So then we realized that that wasn't going to work. And so we had our researchers look at the minutes and video sessions and agendas of every single municipality in British Columbia to verify whether they were following the law post-2015. And we broke this into two: the inaugural and regular sessions. People will often include a prayer in an inaugural meeting because prayer is often considered as having, and I'm using air quotes here, a solemnizing um, effect on meetings. This, of course, is not the case because obviously the Supreme Court has ruled that, you know, excluding people from a meeting is not acceptable. And so clearly excluding people from a meeting doesn't really solemnize that meeting. It actually probably undermines the whole purpose of that meeting. But we looked at both of those factors. Oh, One quick
0: question uh, from Adam.
1: A really good question. So when it comes to municipal councils, the answer is it varies incredibly. Um, some yes. municipalities, we couldn't find the minutes. <laughs> some of them, we couldn't find the agendas. Some of the websites were down. Some of them have audio or video recordings. Typically what happens though, is that often they will introduce the individual delivering the prayer and that will be included in the minutes and the content of the prayer will not be included in the minutes. And this is something we saw reflected at the the provincial legislature as well, which I'll talk about momentarily. But yeah, basically, it it varies considerably, and we ended up having to transcribe a lot of those prayers. Most municipalities don't transcribe their meetings verbatim. They usually rely on audio recordings and sort of um, jot notes, and so they wouldn't record the content of the prayers. But they will often record, because it's an inaugural meeting, they will record the person delivering the prayer, which actually makes our lives really easy because if it's you know Monsignor Bob delivering the prayer, we can know that it's probably a Christian prayer. You know, and if it was you know Imam Bob delivering a prayer, we could probably guess that it was a Muslim prayer. It makes it from a methodological perspective a lot easier than trying to guess what religion the prayer belongs to. It seems that well, I'll get into the results in a second because maybe differentiating the prayers is quite easy. But yeah, really good question. Any any follow questions on that? And one reason, actually, this is just as a bit of an aside, but one reason that a lot of legislative assemblies won't record the content of prayers, and in fact, some will exclude the public from those prayers, it goes back to the British tradition. A prayer in the British legislature was adopted in the 1600s, and it was often considered as a private affair. For It was a prayer delivered for the members of the, count, of the legislative assembly. As such, they um, would exclude members of the public. And so often, the modern uh, translation of this is that the prayers aren't transcribed and it just says prayers in the minutes and then they move on this is often I mean it's both it's bad from someone who's trying to, perspective of, trying, of someone who's trying to research it it's good from someone who's trying to not you know encourage our Hansard people to waste their time typing up prayers um, so it's a bit of a cost-benefit analysis there but yeah so we our summer researchers looked at the minutes of meetings we had them do a random selection of post 2015 minutes we had them look at the inaugural meetings that was November 2018 most councils met at that point. And then we also had them pick a couple of random committee meetings um, just to check to see if those, those municipalities had had a prayer being delivered. We, oh, and, and just one, one point to draw a distinction here. We did draw a distinction between um, First Nations territorial land acknowledgements and prayers. And um, recognizing this gets murky sometimes, because sometimes the First Nations territorial land acknowledgement will include deeply religious content. And not necessarily religious content from an indigenous religion, but often Christian religion. Um, but we left those aside as, as treating them as a separate category of things. Um, and that's a, another research project for another day. And I'll also talk a bit more about that momentarily. But yeah, so there are 162 municipalities in British Columbia. I think it's down to 161 because a resort town has lost its classification. Of those, we found that 23 started with prayers. And of those prayers, all 23 of them were Christian prayers. And they were all delivered by Christian members of the clergy who were disproportionately men. And so you kind of see a a general trend here and the scale of the municipalities varied considerably. So hundred mile house and Lake Cowichan started with prayers. Similarly, Saanich, Victoria, North Vancouver, and Langley all started with prayers. So we're seeing a kind of a wide range and sort of to wrap up this element of our project, what we've then done is we sent letters to these municipalities to remind them that the Constitution forbids them from starting meetings with a, with a prayer. And we're going to follow up after the next election, um, which will be in 2020, to see if the municipalities that previously started with prayers have stopped doing so we suspect that a lot of the municipalities just really weren't aware of Saginay. It was in 2015 and it's not necessarily the role of whoever's organizing the inaugural meeting to be completely aware of all the laws. So we're going to send them reminders before the next um, inaugural and follow up on municipalities that continue to break the law in spite of that, uh, that warning. Yeah, and um, the second part of this project, which is sort of expanding it, is looking at all 3,700 municipalities across Canada. Yeah, the question was, out of curiosity, was New Westminster one? Um, I don't know if they used it in their inaugural meetings, but I wasn't sure if uh, they've changed. This is a good question. Let me bring up my list. It's sitting right here. So, New Westminster was not on that list. No, so it seems like they've updated their practices from last time. However, if you are aware of them starting a meeting with a prayer, because it may have slipped through our, our net, please let us know, because we're happy to follow up on that. Yeah, the other question here is, is there any initiative to engage with candidates for municipal elections to get commitments to compliance? Um, that's not something we've thought of, um, mostly because we, we don't need their commitment. It's the law, they have to follow it. And so when you have a big stick like the Canadian Constitution, you don't need to ask people to follow it. They are required to by law. So the severity and the strength of the wording of letters that will be sent to municipalities was very generous when we first let them know before 2015, before the last inaugural in 2018. But if those 23 municipalities continue the practice after 2020, they would have had fair warning. And at this point, we don't really need a commitment from them. We need them to change that behavior immediately. And you know, it's, it's a legal issue at that point. Uh, the next question was, were there any municipalities that had a rotating religious or otherwise opening? The answer is we don't know because we only looked at the inaugural meetings at 2018. We did ask municipalities and look to see if municipalities have previously changed their practices. One of the challenges you get is the inaugural meetings are often orchestrated by the current incoming or incumbent mayor and as a result, it it tends to be kind of different every year, depending on who the mayor is. And there doesn't tend to be lots of practices that are passed on from year to year. So basically the mayor comes in, they invite their favorite priest to come give a prayer. They pick their favorite bagpiper, their favorite judge comes in to help them with the oath of office and friends and family are invited and that kind of thing. So there isn't really a lot of concrete procedures that are around those kinds of things, but that's a really good question. The municipal, sorry, the provincial legislature of Ontario starts with the Lord's prayer and a rotation of a number of other prayers, which include Baha'i, Jewish, Muslim, and uh, First Nations, and I think one other one I've forgotten, um, attention to Sikh prayer. And they have a rotation um, where they start, they append those on after the Lord's Prayer. But we haven't noticed any municipalities with a kind of rota of of religions, as you will. Um, If you're interested in that, though, the legislature of Scotland does have a process whereby they start with prayer, but the person delivering the prayer, they're directly proportionate with the most recent census, if 25% of people in Scotland are Anglican, then 25% of the prayers opening their legislature will be Anglican. Um, and they've asked some really cool invocations. They had a woman deliver one to be a, a British Sign Language, and um, they've had some other interesting poetry and things read. We did look into them, and one problem with the Scottish model is while they have a really good representation of different faiths out there, they're disproportionately dudes. There are disproportionately people who identify as male, and so this is an ongoing issue with when it comes to prayer. And I'll talk a bit more about that a little later on. Yeah, good, good question. The answer is they're almost all they're all Christian. We haven't noticed a lot of non-Christian prayers being delivered in municipalities. We can look back in the past, and that might be part of our ongoing research. Good question. Yeah, so that kind of um, basically we're going to be looking at all three thousand seven hundred municipalities across the country. And um, we did a quick survey of 19 municipalities in Alberta, and we found one of them is cur- was currently violating the constitution. Um, that was with Taskwin, So they had their inaugural meeting start with a prayer. And we reckon if we look at municipalities across the country, we'll be able to, to identify a percentage of, of municipalities that are violating the law. And then we can send them letters and remind them that they should be following it. Any, any other questions before we move on to our next, uh, the next item? So once we looked at municipal councils, we then looked at the provincial legislature. So daily sessions of the BC legislature prior to November 2019 began with prayers. And um, as, as Adam was asking um, with the question, they, were, they weren't Hansardized, which means they weren't transcribed into the record, nor did we know who was delivering that prayer. So if you're interested in a, a larger study of this, I'm gonna actually post the link in the chat box because um, I gave about an hour and a half long talk on this subject. And I don't want to go into the report in too much detail. But for those who are interested, this is the podcast with the full breakdown of the report that we wrote. Basically, we set this out almost two more than two years ago, where the BC Humanists were interested in looking at the religiosity and content of the prayers delivered in the BC Legislature. And we went about, and this was a huge process because they weren't Hansardized, so we couldn't just download the prayers. We actually had to transcribe them all. So we recruited 52 volunteers who transcribed 877 prayers. We also did 70 of those twice just to make sure that we were getting accuracy correct. And our our volunteers had an excellent accuracy rate. And we broke down all the content of those prayers in the house of prayers report. And and Katie ran a lot of the the analysis and the coding for that. Uh, Renil here was one of our amazing researchers who helped code all of those prayers. And if you're interested in that, that content, um, we have a 138-page report that's on the website and linked in the in the chat. Do please check it out. But the summary of that study was that the prayers in the BC legislature are disproportionately religious. Fewer MLAs are delivering prayers. The prayers are getting longer, they're getting more religious, and they ultimately don't represent the views of British Columbians. And so I won't go into too much detail I'm rehashing those findings, but basically we found that 71.2% of the prayers were religious and where we were able to, to to identify the religion, 93.1% of those were Christian. And so that's a lot of one religion being represented in a very diverse province. So I'll, I'll pause there, but I, I would encourage people to check out the report or to at least read the summary of it. Cause it does really break down the results um, and the content of the prayers that we found in the BC legislature. So we've kind of moved on from that project and we've expanded in a number of ways. So one of them is a the municipal council of studies, but the other ones are a couple of other updates we've done. So we were really kind of excited kind of not excited, but in November, 2019, the BC legislature changed their standing orders. So standing order 25 is the one that says that um, daily sittings start with a prayer. And they updated that from prayers to sort prayer to prayer and reflection, prayers and reflections. So that is kind of a change. And so we were kind of, it seemed somewhat promising that they made a bit of an adaptation. So now that we can have prayers and reflections, one of the problems with only calling them prayers is that even if someone wants to deliver a secular invocation, that person is still tempted to still fit within the confines of a prayer. So we actually noticed this, that a significant percentage of the prayers that were coded as secular still ended in Amen. So 88.7% of the prayers that we considered secular still ended in Amen. And that's mostly because um, of the structure. You know, if someone asks you to deliver a prayer, even if you don't want to deliver an actual prayer, you're still often going to adhere to the hegemonic structures of of prayer and the culture that you're in. And we actually submitted six sample prayers ourselves, and we had a lot of difficulty writing them in such a way that they wouldn't seem overtly prayer-like. So that was kind of an interesting change that happened in the BC legislature. So one of the studies that we're going to do, and this is um, a book chapter that we're going to be having um, coming out Most likely next year, depending on academic publishing cycles, which which again remains unknown. I have a book chapter that's been waiting for two years to come out. But we're going to look at how the content of prayers has changed since the update. So up until November 2019, we have prayers. And then from then to the current, we have prayers and reflections. And so it's not necessarily the most robust sample size. It's probably only about 60 or 70 prayers at best. So what we're going to look and see how those have changed over time. Uh, another thing that changed specifically was that Leonard Krogh left the BC legislature and has become mayor of Nanaimo. And that's significant only because he delivered more prayers than any other MLA in the study sample. Um, in the report, we have league tables that list like who's delivered the most prayers and it's Leonard Krogh at the top of every single table and his prayers were of a certain variety. And um, yeah, so ultimately it's going to totally change the face of prayer in the BC legislature because from 2003 on, we basically have one guy, I think it was at one point like 23% of the NDP prayers or some other significant percentage were one dude. So that's going to be one of our update studies. And a second study that's coming out that, that Ian and I are working on is the history of prayer in the BC legislature. So this recent change in November kind of, turned us on to the fact that prayer has evolved over time in BC legislature. So yeah, basically prayer has evolved over time. It's hard to study though, because as we mentioned before, prayer is not included in in Hansard. So you don't have a written record. So you'll often just have a line that says prayer. We don't know what's being said there. So we're currently going through the legislative records to find out when prayer changed from the Lord's prayer to MLA's choice to the current model. And just just as a quick point of interest, the current model is that MLAs are invited to deliver a prayer. They're given a sample sheet with five sample prayers on it. They may deliver one of those prayers or they can deliver a prayer of their own devising. And 50% of MLAs choose to deliver the prayer from the sample sheet. And this is directly relevant to our next project, which I'm going to transition into now. But I will pause for additional questions. And yeah, so we are looking at the history of prayer in BC. Was that a hand, Beth? Or I don't know. (laughs) Oh, really good question from Adam. So the sample sheet. So let's get into that right away. So basically there is a sample sheet of prayers. As I mentioned, there's five prayers on it and they are given to MLAs and MLAs tend to use those prayers 50% of the time. Sometimes they'll mix them together. So they'll pick a few prayers from one and a few prayers from the other. They'll combine two of them or they'll read the first line of one and the second line of another, almost like they don't know how to follow along with reading. Of those five prayers, we coded two of them as secular and that they sort of just say, hey, let's all hope that BC is prosperous. Um, We coded three of them as overtly religious. So if you're interested in these, um, if you go to the, I'll give you the link here again. If you click on the, on this link here, this is the the report and you can just, um, if you click on that, you can just search um, one of the appendixes is the list of sample prayers and you can read them. One thing that's noteworthy is that the two prayers that we coded as secular still ended ended in Amen. So you're still getting that prayer structure that's very much um, sort of from the Abrahamic traditions, and it's not a a traditional way of ending a prayer for other cultural groups. So it's still very much within one group of one religious group or one broader ecosystem of religious traditions. Now here's the fun stuff. This is the ongoing research. And um,
0: quickly, one of the things that I I wanted to mention uh, that came out of the analysis that I personally found really fascinating was that there was strong evidence that MLAs from different parties tend to use prayers very differently.
1: Right. Oh, I have that here. Yeah, sorry. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> really good. There's, this is just so much information that we get on this. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It was, it was 11 point something percent. Here it is. Um, yeah. If you look at the different parties, um, they're more likely to do like religious versus non-religious. So NDP MLAs were more likely to give uh, secular prayers, 31.4% versus 26%. And liberal MLAs were significantly more likely to deliver Christian prayers, with 25.4% identified as Christian, compared with 9.2% of the prayers by NDP MLAs. One thing that's also worth mentioning is that we had very conservative coding when it came to determining what was Christian and what was not. So unless the prayer overtly mentioned a Jesus character or had language that was explicitly from the religious text of Christianity, we wouldn't code it as as Christian, so just because a prayer started with Heavenly Father, we wouldn't necessarily we wouldn't code that as Christian because it could also be a Mormon prayer. It could be a prayer from another religious tradition. So, when we say that say twenty three percent of the prayers in the BC Legislature, or let me get the exact number for you here, twenty point two percent of the prayers delivered in the BC Legislature were identified as explicitly Christian. That doesn't necessarily mean that a lot of the other prayers didn't also fit into that prayer ecosystem. Yeah, there's so many different fascinating things we can look at. So for example, when we do our update study on BC legislative prayer, we're going to look at um, things like gender. We didn't look at that in the last study because we just had so much content. But the question would be like, are people identifying as female delivering prayers more likely to be religious or not to deliver religious prayers or not? There's so much stuff that you can do. And the cool thing is, because we believe in open access, all of our data is publicly available. Katie has made her coding available. It's in the report. If you follow the link to the report itself, you can look at our database and you can use the database and you can do whatever math and any analysis that you want on it. And we encourage you to do so because there's a lot of things that can be found within that, uh, those prayers as well. I mean, we didn't even look at like the words themselves and closeness of words and proximity of different terms. And there's just so much stuff we could have done. Yeah, great, 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 great point. Thank you. Yeah, so there is a list of sample prayers. And here's the interesting thing. So the clerk of the BC legislature contacted us last year about the fact that they were revising the current practices around prayer. And that's why we released the House of Prayers report, because we were already working on the project for about a year and a half, but we kind of scrambled to get the thing together to make the deadline so that the, the report itself could influence the process involved in reviewing prayer. The clerk got in touch with us again and said that they're making a list of prayers a sample list of prayers and could we help contribute some humanist prayers or invocations or declarations. It's always difficult to talk about these things. They're prayer. We call them prayers, but some of them are poems. Some of them are actually, we found some great um, like partisan attacks, some, some threats that were delivered through the prayers. Like one of the MLAs threatened a union through his prayer, which is controversial. And, you know, we've had, uh, Renil had to compile the great list of some of the most ridiculous prayers we found. Some of them thank, you know, God for shipping contracts. Um, There was definitely a few veiled partisan Uh, swiped across the aisle, as it were. So we compiled a list of six sample invocations that could be included in this list, and those can be found in the uh, House of Prayer study. But then we got to thinking, okay, this is problematic. You've asked the BC Humanists to submit prayers to reflect 67-something percent of British Columbians that don't believe in a God. We're not representative of that group right just because someone on the bc census says that they're not religious doesn't mean that they would be a member of the pcha and they probably aren't given our membership numbers which are going up uh, but they aren't 60% of the province so that was a bit of a problem but the next report we're working on is called arbiters of faith and it explores whether the clerk of the bc legislature can actually explore the que- can actually look into the question of what is prayer what is religion and we basically come to the conclusion that no, the the clerk of the, of the BC legislature can't actually decide what prayers to include on the sample list without breaking the constitution. So for example, I'll walk you through some of the questions that we explore in this report, and it's coming out. Um, This is actually an academic article, so it's going to peer review in a couple of days. The first question is like, what constitutes a religion? So under Canadian jurisprudence, it's not clear. We don't know what an actual religion is, right? So whether a you know, some people say, well, I know it when I see it. So, yeah, clearly, you know, Roman Catholicism is a religion. But is Ekonkar a religion? Is Scientology a religion? Is the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Noodle Monster a religion? And it's really difficult for <laughs> getting shout outs to our, um, our Pastafarian friends. It's really difficult to decide what is a religion. And this becomes a problem when the clerk of the BC legislature is asking different religions to submit sample prayers. Do they ask the unions for a prayer to, to the workers? Do they ask for um, someone to come chant the hue before a meeting? And do they ask Pastafarians to come and drink, I suppose a toast, um, maybe chug a beer before the meeting starts? I, is that, I think that's a culturally appropriate. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, people are raising glasses in the chat. There we go, ha. Huh. Um, I think it's a culturally appropriate um, Pastafarian reference. So if you look on our report, breaks down the jurisprudence on this, we don't know what actually is a religion. And as a result, the clerk can't really find, can't really canvas religions for sample prayers because we don't know what they are. But even once we've done that, there's another problem. And that is what religions make the cut? Just because something is a religion doesn't mean it's very well represented in British Columbia. So 0.5% of British Columbians identified themselves as being Jewish in the last census. So that's, now there was about 2 something percent of prayers in the BC legislature were prayers that we classified as Jewish, um, but there were no Sikh prayers. But a significantly more larger percentage of people identify as Sikh in British Columbia. And so when we look at like how do you actually decide which religions to ask, the first method is like bureaucratic familiarity. So some religions are just better represented, and so the bureaucrats just sort of pick the ones they know. That doesn't really work though, because they just may not know about all the different religions. Again, people who follow the teachings of Sri Harold Klemp and our Ekankarists will have no idea, you know, are definitely not going to be understood and, and fall into the bureaucratic familiarity of the clerk of the BC legislature. I'd be surprised if most of you know what Ekonkar is. Go have some fun. Uh, there's a deep dive you can take on Ono Ross and Carry, a great podcast, and uh, they, they break it down into lots of detail, which is why I think I have probably too much familiarity with it. <laughs> but the next thing you could do is population... Exactly. Dem- oh,
0: Really quick, uh, Lauren has a question about the Scottish yeah, model. Yeah, the
1: Scottish model. Yeah, so this is the question. Like, Could you use the Scottish model here? The challenge with the Scottish model, again, now that kind of brings, actually, it falls perfectly into my next point, which is population demographics. You could do exactly what they're doing in Scotland. There are some problems with this as well, though, simply because you have, I think, think it's like 32,000 different sects, um, different denominations of Protestant, right? And so the question would be then, okay, which ones do we pick? And then the other questions would be, okay, which ones are we, are we asking to be representative of a different group? And I'll, I'll talk about this in a moment, but there's a lot of other problems with asking organized religious groups and non-organized religious groups. The other challenge you get, actually, I'll talk about that now because it came up. As I mentioned with the Scottish model, you get disproportionately men participating because they're overrepresented in, in, in the clergy of most, of most religions because there's a lot of sexism. And so you actually, well, that's a huge problem that's magnified in this process. But again, there's that other question of like, who speaks for the non-believers? So if you look at the the demographics of British Columbians, and I'll bring up my chart here because it's... it's And I was
0: going to say, Adam just mentioned representation of groups that do not do prayer. So some religious groups that don't, yeah.
1: Well, it goes actually just to build on that, what Adam was adding, some groups don't do public prayer, right? There's actually a strong Christian tradition that says, you know, don't be like the... I think it's Matthew oh, well, I'm going to get my, my Bible verse wrong here. But you know, you know, don't be like the hypocrite and don't pray in public. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses won't engage in civic activity in this, of this nature. Um, There's some religions that wouldn't permit prayer in this setting. So for example, you have to deliver a prayer in a consecrated building. Don't think the legislature is consecrated. Um, Some religious traditions prohibit the delivery of prayer in in front of non-believers or in front of women. And those groups then couldn't be represented in the legislature. So there's a lot of groups that would necessarily be excluded by nature of their beliefs. And again, it becomes like an even deeper question of, you know, well, how do we actually how do we pick these groups? And particularly for non-believers, just because someone is a non-believer doesn't mean they don't necessarily have a spiritual tradition or a faith tradition. And there's even more problems. And this is just building up. Thank you, Matthew 6, 5. Thank you, really. There's another big problem. And that's which data, which demographic data do you rely on? If you rely on the census, the census asks people a question in a certain way. and I, I don't know if the wording in front of me here, but basically the way that it's worded, it's asking them sort of to follow like which religious tradition do you belong to? but that doesn't necessarily reflect whether they believe in that tradition itself. So you can have someone who's say, for example, identifies as a secular Jew who would be uncomfortable with a religious prayer being delivered on their behalf, still check the Jewish box on the census. So when it, and our demographic data is not very good because um, the long form census was um, well, I can still blame Harper for getting rid of that and destroying um, tons of, of wealth of data. So that was a, big, a bit of an issue as well. So you can try the Scottish model. It's definitely better than other models, but it does still have its problems. And I've only gone into some of them. More of them are in the paper. There's been some other comments here. Let me just check those out there. Why should it be excluded in general? Let me get into that in a sec. I
0: think he was just mentioning you know, that there are all of these different problems, and he's just commenting that, that that's why prayer should be excluded as a general rule.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, so basically the finding of this study is that either we let MLAs do it themselves, or we abolish it. Um, The BCHA is very firm that we abolish legislative prayer because it's just incredibly problematic. But this is sort of another shot at the process. Um, And it kind of also, the paper that we're, we're releasing is looking at, okay, well, other legislatures that want to review legislative prayer, can they actually do this? Is it possible to review it? And if the revision process is more difficult than just abolishing it, then ideally we just abolish it, right? If it's impossible to to review the process, then clearly the process is broken, uh, Sorry, is unconstitutional, and the revision process is unconstitutional. Um, And that's kind of where we're building to. Yeah, sorry, Lauren, that that makes much more sense. Yeah, so when you use census data, it's very complicated. The third option would be to use the demographics of the legislature. After all, the prayer is supposed to be for the legislators. It's not supposed to be public. The problem there, of course, becomes like privacy issues. People's religions change over time. And again, like this doesn't seem like the appropriate place for it, right? If people want to pray before they go into the legislature, they can meet up in a meeting room or pray on their own time. They shouldn't be doing it publicly. So there's a lot of other issues around that. So then the question becomes what prayers do you use because just because you said we're okay we 're going to have one Jewish prayer and seven Protestant prayers and three Sikh prayers, now you have to pick those prayers, and it becomes even more problematic, not just from a constitutional perspective but from a practical perspective so for example, you know you can ask you can say oh we 're going to have one Jewish prayer, but now you're asking reformed Jews and Hasidic Jews to pick a prayer. there is no way that they're going to agree on a single prayer. you know you might have Anglicans and Catholics some forms of Protestants agreeing to the Lord's prayer, but you're certainly not going to get agreement. You're getting head shakes. You might, Um, but you probably won't, right? Like Anglicans have numerous prayers they might pick. So that's a problem. And then there's another problem, which is who do you ask? If you ask the bishop, now you're asking the representative of that faith. Well, some faith traditions don't have a clear hierarchical structure. So do you ask every single charismatic uh, Christian house preacher what prayer they would use? Or do you ask every single different um, small segment of Hasidism which Jewish prayer they would submit? That becomes problematic. But it gets even deeper. As I mentioned before, the people you're asking are disproportionately men, and you're not asking their congregants which prayers they like. So the prayer that the local bishop might pick is not the prayer that the ladies auxiliary would pick. And so you have a huge issue there Reflect. And it gets even further. Like, as we mentioned before, how do you pick the non-religious folks you know do you do an open survey so you could conceivably ask the public what they wanted well here's one problem first of all the there was a you know jurisprudence has established that the canadian government cannot arbitrate between matters of dogma so apart from like typography and spelling and like punctuation if the clerk of the house of legislature has two prayers Sorry, Lauren, I'm piling on here. Uh, It's a 35 page report. You can see it all. It it piles on heavily. But if, if the Speaker or the Clerk of the House has two prayers and they're both like spelled properly, they have no basis for picking between the two of them without breaking the Constitution and picking one version of the religion over another. So even arbitrating between two different texts, and we're talking like it could be the difference between in His name or in Jesus' name, just picking the difference between those two prayers would violate the Constitution. So it becomes impossible for the clerk of the house to actually pick a prayer. So you could leave it up to the public, but there's no way to pick between them. And as a quick aside, when the governor of Ontario discussed reviewing and replacing the Lord's Prayer with another prayer, their website actually shut down because they had too many responses from people expressing an opinion on it. So we could survey the entire public of British Columbia. Um, We could have every single person submit a prayer, because ultimately people's religious um, beliefs are are different. You know, two people sitting in the pews of the same small church are not going to agree on everything. Or again, we could just abolish it or get the MLAs to deliver it. So that's our study on arbiters of faith. And I'm really excited because that paper is going off to peer review in the next week. And it kind of builds on this whole process of like, when are we able to, how how can the clerk possibly pick a prayer? And the answer is they can't. It's just not possible to do so without violating the constitution. I'm going to pause there because there's a lot of good comments on there. Anyone want to have any questions or thoughts on that before I move on to sort of the last big summary here? Excellent. Yeah. And again, I think Lauren, you raise a really good point, which is, it's so complicated and so constitutionally problematic to pick a sample set of prayers and even to deliver prayer in the BC legislature that the process practice should be ended. But the question is, what do we replace it with? So I'll I'll segue into the next pro, um, research project here nicely. Across Canada, there's different practices. So some legislatures start with the Lord's prayer or a slight version of the Lord's prayer. Um, some of them will start with the the speaker of the house delivering a prayer of their own choosing of their own devising. Some of them will have nothing. So Newfoundland and Labrador starts with no prayer. And some of them will have a moment of silent reflection. So Quebec starts with a moment of silent reflection. The BCHA has a hierarchy of preferences. We would like to abolish it, if we must, replace it with a moment of quiet reflection. I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't pray during that, but you could also prepare your speech or play Candy Crush. The third option, which we also were supportive of, was to replace it with a territorial land acknowledgement. This has become more common in an age of truth and reconciliation, But it's kind of astounding that the B.C. legislature does not start with an official territorial land acknowledgement. So our other report, which is coming out shortly as soon as we finish the design work on it, literally um, explores that question. So some background here. This, again, builds off the House of Prayers study. And we looked at the House of Prayers study and we found that only 6% of the prayers had content that could be classified as Indigenous content. And 85.7% of those 6% were a single word. And they're disproportionately a couple of MLAs from Northern British Columbia using one single word. Yes. Oh, no, Adam, I'm going to get to that. I'll come into that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this is a really good question. His question was, isn't there a risk of reducing the impact of Atlantic recognition if it becomes pro forma part of the activity? Absolutely. I um, mean, I'll get, to, I promise I'll get to that in a sec. So a bit more in the background, though. And this is actually just to, to preface what Katie is going to probably contribute here as well. When we looked at the prayers, we found that New Democratic MLAs were much more likely to have First Nations content in their prayers, 11.7% compared to Liberals, 0.2%. So there's definitely an, a, a partisan uh, division there. So, just a bit of overview of First Nations um, involvement or Indigenous involvement in the BC legislature. Prior to 1949, Indigenous people could not vote in the BC legislature or hold office there. And Inuit were not permitted to vote until 1950. And um, Ian found this amazing bit of information, actually more horrifying than amazing, but despite the fact that Inuit could technically vote, they were not supplied with ballot boxes until 1962. So, that was a huge problem. And up until 1960, um, status Indians under the Indian Act could only vote in a federal election if they revoked their status. So there's a history of of exclusion of Indigenous and First Nations people in legislatures and parliament. And once First Nations folks were permitted to vote, we saw a very marginal increase um, in their getting elected. The first person elected, the first um, Indigenous person was uh, Frank Arthur Calder of the Nisga Nation he was elected in 1949, and he held the seat until 1979. Um, and he was the only Indigenous MLA until 2005. So there was, there's was a large gap, and there's still a really small number. Um, we identified only six Indigenous persons ever elected to the BC legislature. So that's a bit of, a, that's a bit of an issue as well. So not only do we have a lack of, of an acknowledgement that um, the legislature itself is built on unceded territory, but we also have history of Indigenous people not being represented in that legislature. So this report that's coming out basically analyzes that and, and looks at some of the other aspects related to sort of colonialism and oppression within the BC legislature. And I'm going to bring up my other notes here. Basically, as I mentioned, we break them down. We don't see a lot of Indigenous content. So our recommendation was if we must, we should abolish legislative prayer. We could replace it with a territorial land acknowledgement. But we wanted to make sure that, and Adam raised a really good point, that this wasn't pro forma. And we also didn't think it was up to us to come up with a structure for this, right? If we're coming up with the way that we acknowledge um, Indigenous territory in the legislature, that should be done in consultation with Indigenous people. And um, they should those those people should be developing the process that works for them. Now, we have a huge number of different diverse cultures across British Columbia. So that's going to be a complicated process. But obviously, you know, part of truth and reconciliation um, involves engaging with that, right? Yeah, so, so basically, the idea would be the BC legislature, if it wanted to really decolonize. There's a lot more work to be done, don't get me wrong. And this is very much sort of um, a small aspect to a broader conversation around decolonization. But the fact that we start with a prayer, and that are disproportionately from one religious group over others, and don't start with a territorial land acknowledgement, is a bit of a problem. So that's our first recommendation. And the recommendation coming into this report was, first of all, to let people know that Indigenous content is disproportionately underrepresented in prayer. And second of all, to ask that if we do create a territorial land acknowledgement, that it will be done in consultation with First Nations and be made appropriate. I mean, there's different models you could do, right? You can invite different representatives of different nations to deliver an acknowledgement. It is somewhat awkward only because the legislature is here in Victoria, but there's no reason why we couldn't invite someone from different nations across the province to deliver um, an invocation. I was looking at the um, legislative prayer practices in Nunavut and Northwest Territories, where they also ask MLAs to deliver a prayer. And several of their sessions will start with drumming, which which makes sense, um, and it's culturally appropriate and is, is a way of welcoming people. So there's tons of different welcome processes we could do. It would be a great opportunity to share different cultural practices, and they're currently not being done. So one of our hopes with this report is to encourage the BC legislature to at least consider starting with the territorial land acknowledgement. I will make one random note, which is that in addition to the most recent change, whereby prayers became prayers and reflections, um, during the COVID, um, the ongoing COVID um, crisis, health issue, they've had much smaller sessions and meetings of the legislature. And as a result, they haven't always had the speaker present. And so we actually had a territorial acknowledgement made when uh, Spencer Chandler Herbert filled in as deputy chair. I'm going to get the date on this one. This was... Um, just the other day, in fact, March 23rd, um, he started his session with a territorial acknowledgement, uh, specifically referencing the Conguin peoples and, and their territories. So it's very much possible to do and it can be included because the speaker can, can start the meeting however they'd like, but it's not codified in the um, standing orders or anything in that, um, that nature. There's been some questions, so I will stop um, prattling on here for a second just to catch up. Yeah, so Lauren raises a really interesting point, and this is that there is religious content often intermeshed with First Nations Indigenous content. And this came up, for example, here in Saanich at the municipal prayer level. Um, There was three prayer, three declarations or invocations that started the most recent inaugural session. One was from a local pastor, another was from a local pastor, and the third was from a local uh, representative of a local First Nations um, nation. And the First Nations invocation was very heavy in the language relating to Jesus. It was very religious, very Christian in nature. This does raise the question of like, if if we're talking about not having religious content in the legislature, do we want to have religious content of very different cultures? Um, It is very much possible to give a welcome address for various cultures, without invoking the religious. This is an issue we haven't looked into as much. And it's one that will probably be a bit above my pay grade and experience insofar as like it's going to have to go to a court at some point. But there is a really interesting question around if we do have territorial acknowledgments, if they're overtly religious in nature, would that also be a violation of the constitution? Um, and that's definitely something, for, something that people should be considering and um, it's worth exploring further. Yeah, really good point. Um, other questions here. Yeah, and that's the other, and more and Adam raised the other point, which is exactly right. Which is, and I have this conversation with other people. You know, you can't ask someone to welcome you onto their territory as a form of decolonization, and then ask them to explicitly say something on your behalf because that becomes sort of colonizing their content itself. Again, that's where this becomes a bit of a land, uh, a bit of a minefield as far as navigating it correctly. And that's why I said it's kind of a bit outside my area of expertise, but it's definitely something that that we should explore. Um, it is again, it's also possible for an acknowledgement. To be made in such a way that isn't religious in nature, but again, yeah, maybe asking someone not to deliver a religious one might be problematic. Um, that's that's a really interesting question, which we should definitely be exploring in an age of truth and reconciliation. But I do not have an answer to that question. I don't think we any. I hope I don't think anyone does. And if you do, please let me know. You're happy to write an addendum to our report. Yeah, and there's some great conversation going on in the chat. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, no, and, and so that, that, that raised some like really good questions around, like, that does also invoke questions of, okay, you can have secular religious prayers, um, for example, there's also secular Jewish holidays, for example, um, and so you get lots of questions around, like, what constitutes a religion, again, that's why when we talked about the, the previous report on Arbiters of Faith, the question becomes, you know, what constitutes a religion becomes a very live question, and what is interesting, though, is that there was a recent court decision um, made... Yeah, so this, is the, um, this actually came out last year. The Port of Al- in Port Alberni, their school district, basically the question was, can you have a smudging ceremony at a school as a demonstration for students of a cultural practice? And this went to the Supreme Court of British Columbia, and it was decided that this was seen as acceptable in the school, so that it was okay for students to observe a religious practice um, or a practice. But the court actually didn't adjudicate as to whether the indigenous practice be considered religious. Um, So we don't actually have an answer to that question. And it goes even deeper. If you look at the the CRA, the Canadian Revenue um, Agency's definitions of a religion, and some court decisions around what is a religion, arguably Buddhism doesn't count as a religion um, under many laws. Um, There was actually a decision that just came out. The Church of Atheism lost a Supreme Court case where the judge was like, yeah, you guys aren't a a church. And it's worth reading that decision, actually. It's quite interesting. Also, don't defend yourself in court. Seriously, get a real lawyer. But the main takeaway there was the judge said, you don't meet the criteria as a religion, but also conceded that under the current rough, vague definitions of what constitutes a religion, neither does Buddhism um, and many other uh, traditions. So the the definitions of religion themselves are often structured in such a way as they fit a Christian hegemony. And that becomes hugely problematic. I've been delving into the literature in the United States where you have a hippie commune. And hippie commune says, look, our farm should be exempt because we are communing with nature in uh, doing our farming practices. And it's not recognized as a religion because it doesn't fit the parameters of what is considered a religion, which people are basically holding up Christianity as their baseline and comparing everything else to it. But that just seems hugely problematic. And then again, where where does one draw the line between a religion and a spiritual practice, or a religion and a really strong belief. Here's another one I'll get you guys on, which I haven't done a report on, but um, I love wearing hats. I have a really strong preference for wearing hats. Um, Someone who's religious has a really strong preference for wearing hats um, because of their religion. I like wearing hats for completely different reasons. I just like them. Does the fact that I don't have a religious basis for my hat preference mean that I shouldn't be allowed to wear a hat in the legislature, whereas someone who has a religious basis for their hat should be, uh, be allowed to? That privileges religious views over non-religious views. um, And that becomes hugely problematic uh, because then you're treating people differently based on their religion. Again, I really like hats. Like, (laughs) I have a huge collection. I have two identical gray hats like this in case I lose one. But, yeah, it becomes like if you really believe something really hard because of fashion or you really believe something really hard because of God, why would we privilege the beliefs in God more than others? It becomes really complicated. But ultimately, the answer to that question is you shouldn't. Um, you shouldn't get more privilege because you happen to believe in a supernatural being compared to just really like assert a, a trilby. I'm gonna catch up on some of the comment that's going on here. Yeah, there's been some questions about culture and religion. It gets really messy. It definitely is. And and that again, that's one of those questions of like some some culture some countries don't have protections for religious freedom. And we'll just include that in the freedom of consciousness, right? Like why do we have a separate category for the Canadian charter that says you have, a ri- you have a right to freedom of consciousness and freedom of religion? They're the same thing. So it seems really problematic unless we are ascribing or smuggling in um, collective group rights into individual rights. And there's some deeper legal questions that are involved there. And those privileges come out in a lot of other things. And we see those coming out in things like permissive tax exemptions and other religious exemptions, which tend to privilege religious views over non-religious views, even if those views are comparable. I'm going to leave it at that. That basically got through all of our research. Um, as I mentioned, we've got a couple other projects we're looking at. Tax exemptions is one of them at the municipal level, tax exemptions at the federal level, and um, other religious exemptions, which kind of, I guess, links really well to the hat conversation. But there's a lot of other ones that exist. Um, and our researchers, um, Renil and, and Noah, went through all of the Canadian existing laws and found out all the different religious exemptions. And they, they vary considerably. So that's another aspect that we're going to be considering. So I'll I'll leave it open to other questions here, uh, last-minute questions. That was a lot of information. I really appreciate you guys sticking out for all of that. As you can see, in summary, um, the BC Humanist Association is doing a lot of research. We're getting a lot of content out there, um, and we're having an impact, right? We have already seen that legislative practice has changed, which I was quite excited about, and we're hoping to have broader impact on actual tangible legislation in the near future and uh, across the country as well.
0: Uh, Thanks, Beth. appreciate that. I um. And I'm looking forward to seeing it come out as well. It's, it's sort of nice when we publish these things that they can become part of the sort of academic literature and something that other other groups can look at, can access, and and you know it's not just something that sort of just gets posted on our website and potentially disappears, but it becomes part of the discussion around these issues. Adam's got a question about volunteer involvement.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Yes. Oh, brilliant. Okay. You know, I have something in this. One sec. I'm just posting um a link here. Hold on. Mm-hmm. Um, the link I'm about to post is just the link to our Arbiters of Faith study. That's the one that I talked about with the uh, the speaker and the clerk and um, whether they're able to adjudicate that. The, the whole report's coming out soon. Mm-hmm. Adam's question is how can you volunteer? Yes. So when we transcribed the prayers last year, our team, 52 people, did 877 prayers in like two months. It was amazing. Um, Some people did like three or 400. I think the record was... 250 prayers or some obscene amount. Um, and it gets quite tedious because as we said, 50% of the prayers are the, the sample prayers. <laughs> so um, so that was a bit of an issue. Um, so we had our, our volunteers do that. We are going to be looking for volunteers this summer to transcribe the remaining prayers. So our study ended at 2019 in February. So we have about two years or two and a half years of prayers that will need to be transcribed. So that will be looking for volunteers for And then we're always looking, we will likely be looking for volunteers to help with the municipal study moving forward. As I mentioned, there's 3,700 municipalities in Canada. We've looked at 106, 174 of them. And it takes, you know, for each municipality, you have to find their website. Um, Sometimes, you know, that involves putting on your 1990s goggles and looking at some terrible websites that were designed on like MySpace. Um, navigating their website, finding out if they had prayer or not, emailing them if you can't find the answer. So there are, you know, thousands of municipalities that we can conceivably contact on that. We'll possibly be looking for volunteers to help with that in the future. And also the other one would be if you have any ideas for additional research, we, we have the BCHA Research Whiteboard where we're compiling lists of other issues that arise. So in the future moving forward, we're going to be working, looking at a couple other issues with some partners. One of them is looking at Oh, too much information in my brain today. Uh, the, what, the other one will be looking at crisis pregnancy centers, which are often disproportionately religious um, and take advantage of people in, in vulnerable situations to discourage them from having abortions or to give them incorrect. Or I was going
0: to say that's, that's what really gets me is the lying that they've been yeah. known to do. So Yeah.
1: So just as a quick bit of background, this crisis pregnancy centers will often deceive people into thinking they're getting comprehensive information. So they'll say, here are the options available to you and they will either downplay abortion as an option or, provide incorrect and fear-based information they'll dress up as doctors and nurses when they aren't actually in the states there's been some reports where they'll have similar logos to actual abortion clinics and they'll set up around the corner so people might get lost and wander into their clinic it's devious um so we're going to be partnering with the um abortion rights coalition of canada to do an investigation into that and we have a, a list of other issues so if you have an issue that comes up please like get in touch with us let us know and um Also, if you have some time on your hands because you're stuck at home with COVID, we actually, I'll talk to Ian about this, the potential of having people help with the municipal research, because there's thousands of municipalities we can look at. And um, it's kind of fun. You get to see the different practices in different municipalities and uh, just how bad their websites are.
0: I was going to say, do we have any municipality by municipality information on the religiosity of those municipalities?
1: Oh, as far as their demographics or the councils Mm -hmm. or the prayers?
0: Uh, of the demographics.
1: We don't, I mean, we could overlay it. It wouldn't be hard to overlay census data with the um, with the actual results of the prayers. I haven't thought to do that, actually. I'll make a note of that. Yeah.
0: I just think that'd be kind of interesting to see if more religious, um, you know, mun- municipalities tend to have more prayers.
1: I'm, I'm just looking at the list, right? I mean, obviously some places, like we have, the list is 100 Mile House. You get Langley, uh, both Langley City and Township, North Vancouver, Peachland, um, Saanich, trail victoria terrace um williams lake so it's, it's a pretty it's a pretty wide mix but it would be interesting to compare the two of them and, and see like whether there's an overlap that's a good point well let's talk about that offline katie because i'd love to yeah for sure
0: sorry i'm always like oh new analysis i get all excited <laughs>
1: so much analysis i love it yeah
0: and thank you adam really appreciate that it's um it's really uh it's really great to have the support of the members and just people saying hey like this is great because you know, sometimes when you're sitting there with lines of code, it gets a little.
1: <laughs> so. Oh, I should also say one more one more thing, just to build on what Katie was mentioning there. We're almost all volunteers, right? So Ian is our, our director. We had the two summer students were paid for by the Canadian Summer Grants Program. I'm mostly a volunteer. I very occasionally get a small bursary or um, some, some small compensation, but most of our projects are volunteer basis. Um, we've only, I think we only have funding for our. Permissive tax exemption study. So of all the studies I've mentioned, only one of them is a a donor has given us money for. The rest of them are all voluntary. So if you can't help out directly by getting involved in the projects or telling people about them or engaging some of our letter writing campaigns that that work in conjunction with these things, you can also, and I shamelessly plug, um, you can also support the campaigns by sponsoring a project um, because it does help us get them done quicker in, in many ways. Yeah. And the other thing is letters, too. So, for example, in a, the House of Prayers project was accompanied by um, a huge province-wide letter-writing campaign where we had hundreds of letters go in to MLAs about the subject, and there'll be more in the future on that. The other one is, and I should mention this, if you look at our municipal reports and you find that you happen to live in a municipality which is either giving away t- tens of thousands or even millions of dollars to um, a place of worship and you don't think that's right – or conversely, if your municipality has prayer at the beginning of their municipal sessions, their inaugural sessions, please let us know because we're always looking for people who have standing in those communities because as I mentioned, moving forward with the municipal prayer particularly, if this municipality, the 23 municipalities continue to start their inaugural sessions of prayer, um, that would be a court case waiting to happen. and We'd love for people to, to st- who have standing in those communities to step up and to make that, be our complainant as it were.
0: All right, Teal, is that... Uh... Is that it, do you
1: think? I think it might be it. Yeah, if you guys have any questions, by the way, you can, get, you can get in touch with me. I will also just very briefly mention that I do a bunch of other research. So I'm the research director for a marine conservation group, Oceans Asia. I do independent research. I do a bunch of other work on local noise pollution. Uh, also, I work with do some place placemaking work here and research around that in, Victor- in Sandage and Victoria. So if you want to learn more about my various research, you can also go to my website, um, teal.ca and, uh, and also just get in touch. You can get in touch through that. Um, I'm happy to talk about our work or share some of our reports with you if you can't find them. And um, yeah, and, and get in touch with the BCHA if you want to get involved. We're always looking for volunteers to work on our various projects.
0: And I was going to say, if you have any feedback about how this session worked, this was a bit of a, you know, first trial run. Please either let Teal or, or um, Ian know. You can find his, his uh, email address on uh, the BC Humanists uh, website. And uh, in general, we're just kind of looking for things that were useful, not so useful. um, And this video will eventually make its way onto the BC Humanists website. So thank you very much for participating, being so active and engaged in this. It's really, um, it really just makes everything that we do so much better when, when we have lots of people involved. So thank you.
1: With that, I'm just going to figure out how to turn this off here. I guess wish you all a wonderful um, lockdown and keep yourself entertained. (laughs) And um, yeah, yeah, definitely the feedback's helpful because we haven't done this before, but we'd love to do more of them. I love talking about our work. And very few people get to see our research apart from the clerk who gets all of it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Have a wonderful Friday, everybody.